please pray with me. Holy Spirit, breathe forth your power upon us this day. This scripture has been read as your word is proclaimed. We might hear and receive with joy what you would say to us this day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The Bible is filled with images of sheep and shepherds. This is not a surprise to any of you, I imagine. Psalm 23 is probably the most famous example. The Lord is my shepherd. But this language turns up repeatedly. It's in Psalm 100, which we just prayed together. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We hear Jesus apply the same language to himself in the gospel reading. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And this language has become a a source of great encouragement and comfort to God's people through the ages. Early Christians used to paint the image of Christ as good shepherd with a lamb on his shoulders on the walls and catacombs. And in our contemporary Anglican practice, this morning, the fourth Sunday of Easter is often called Good Shepherd Sunday. But all of that scriptural imagery takes an unexpected turn in our reading from Revelation chapter 7. I don't know if you caught this. Verse 17 says, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. How can a lamb be a shepherd? We've gotten used to this sort of language, so most of us assume we know what this means. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the good shepherd. QED, problem solved. Okay. So most of us don't stop to think how weird that sentence actually is. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Of course, this is Revelation, so it's actually even weirder than you think. Last Sunday, we read part of chapter 5 in which the angel tells John not to weep any longer about this scroll that no one is able to open because he says the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And John starts looking around, presumably to find this lion. And here's what he sees. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. What on earth does that look like? But again, this is Revelation, so it gets weirder. The lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is a strange, a mysterious, an apocalyptic lamb. And that whole scene is in the background, and in some sense, I think, comes to a climax Here in chapter 7, when the innumerable multitude of the redeemed gather around the Lamb in heavenly worship, and one of those 24 elders tells John everything has come right at last for those who assemble around the throne because the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. So this morning I want us to sit with the strangeness for a little while. To meditate together on what it means that our shepherd is also a lamb. First and most obviously, it means he's one of us. 
It's wonderful to have a good shepherd if you are a sheep. One who cares for the sheep, who guards and protects them, who leads them to green pastures and sources of still water, who seeks them out when they go astray. That's amazing. But it's something else again to have a shepherd who knows about sheep from the sheep side of the equation. We already knew from the Old Testament that the Lord is a good shepherd to his people, but what John sees and shows us in this vision of the lamb is a profound revelation of God's humility. Friends, this is where the good news of Jesus Christ begins. The divine, all-powerful, all-holy Son of God lays aside his glory and becomes one of us. The word by whom all things were created makes himself lowly and becomes a creature. The shepherd becomes a sheep, a lamb. He's one of us. He knows our situation, our need, and our struggles, not only through divine knowledge, although his knowledge is perfect, not only through observation, although his perception is complete, he knows it from experience. If I can put it this way, we have a shepherd who understands our sheepishness from the inside. He gets it. He understands. He's one of us. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd as a revelation of God's humility. Because what's more weak, what's more fragile, what's more defenseless than a lamb? He's not even a full-grown sheep who could fend for itself or defend itself a little bit, maybe, if the need arose. A lamb. And that points to the second thing we see here, not just divine humility, but also divine sacrifice. Remember that verse from chapter 5. Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now that's picking up a whole nother set of Old Testament imagery. Our shepherd isn't just a lamb, he's a sacrificial lamb. A lamb made ready for the altar. A Passover lamb whose blood marks the doorposts of believers so that the angel of death will pass by and not touch them. A lamb signifying a divine substitution, an exchange of his life for ours. In Revelation 7, one of the elders asks, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? John hands the question back to him. Sir, you know. He answers, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Blood of sacrifice, blood that doesn't stain but cleanses from stain and makes holy. And for this reason, the great assembly before the throne shouts out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the lamb. Salvation, cleansing from sin, yes, but not just cleansing from sin. This Greek word we translate salvation can also mean healing, restoration. Because after all, those who need to be saved have suffered. The elder describes them as the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And we hear this sort of thing throughout the New Testament. That suffering is part of the ordinary experience of God's people. Some of you already know that. 
To be a follower of Jesus, a servant of the Lamb who was slain, is to be ready to bear wounds for his sake. As supernatural reality unfolds before John's eyes in this vision, he sees that the normal Christian life is characterized by martyrdom. And yet, and yet, the song of this multitude is a song of joy. It's a shout of praise. Not because they haven't suffered. They have. But because they've been united to the Lamb's suffering in his sacrifice, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Their suffering is being redeemed through his suffering. I like how the theologian Joseph Mangina puts it in his commentary on this passage. He says, the distress of God's people is, in fact, their passage from death into life. Their suffering is a cleansing, a clothing, perhaps even an investiture in office corresponding to the Lamb's own. By virtue of his high priestly work, they themselves have become a kingdom of priests standing before the throne of God and serving him day and night in his temple. The Lamb's death thus marks the birth pangs of the new creation so that to be his follower and witness is to participate in the life he brings. This is the word martyr, what the word martyr means, witness. A witness to the Lord's suffering, to the Lamb's sacrifice, yes, but also to his enthronement and triumph. The Lamb John sees is standing as though it had been slain, but it's standing in the midst of the throne. He's not dead. If this vision is a sign of divine humility and divine sacrifice, it's also a sign of divine victory. And here's John's point. To share in the suffering is to be a partaker in the victory as well. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, the elder says. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. To share in Christ's suffering is also to be a partaker in his victory. So the question then is, how does that happen? What does it look like for us to participate in that sacrifice and that divine triumph? How do we know and enact that the lamb in the midst of the throne is our good shepherd? I want to offer two suggestions briefly. First, it means being united with Jesus in his humility. This past week, With the Brazos Fellows, I was reading the last part of Robert Louis Wilkins' book, The Spirit of Early Christian Thought, which, by the way, is probably the best introduction to early Christianity that I know. Toward the end of the book, he quotes St. Gregory of Nyssa to suggest that we imitate God by becoming humble. This is counterintuitive for us. Here's what he says. Even though everything else associated with the divine nature is beyond our capability, says Gregory, Humility is within our grasp. Those who want to fall in the way of the lamb have to do what he does. 
to lay aside our claims and our vain attempts at glory and let our status decrease to make ourselves lowly. We have to accept the possibility of finding ourselves among the sort of people who can't advance our agenda or make us look good or increase our social capital or our buying power so that we can also find ourselves among those who can be, are being saved. To have the lamb in the midst of the throne as our good shepherd means being united with Jesus in his humility. And in his humility, we're also united with him in his sacrifice, which means, second, accepting the gift of freedom from self-protectiveness. Because look, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us would do almost anything to avoid passing through great tribulation or even mild tribulation. We're afraid of being damaged. We're terrified of suffering. And so we either scrupulously avoid any kind of conflict where the collision between our commitment to Christian faith and the world's commitments could appear, even if that means disguising or hiding that or being a little quiet and deceptive. Or we see the collision coming and we feel this almost overwhelming need to safeguard and defend ourselves, to fight back, to lash out. We get into this defensive mode. Maybe we even feel an impulse to protect Jesus. People are saying bad things about Jesus. That happens sometimes. We're like Peter trying to protect his master from the cross. At some level, we don't want our good shepherd to be a lamb. I'd like to just stick with the lion part, please. And yet, in the midst of the chaos and apocalyptic trials and destruction, what St. John sees is a lamb that was once slain but now is triumphant, once sacrificed but undefeated, immune to threat or danger, once Satan and all the rebellious principalities and powers tried to destroy this lamb, because after all, what's more defenseless than a lamb? Death laid hold of him to possess him. But in doing so, death gave itself over into his power. Because the lamb that was slain is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And brothers and sisters, he has won the victory. Can I hear an amen? At the very beginning of this series of visions, in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus appears aflame with glory. Here's what he says. Fear not. John, you're in exile. John, Christians are being persecuted. You're overwhelmed by what you're about to see already. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Satan has no power over him. Suffering can't threaten him. Death can't touch him any longer. The powers of evil have been cast down before his throne. They tremble at his name. He holds the keys. And that means, friends, we don't have to make desperately sure that we're safe from any possible danger. We don't have to be on the defensive. We're free to let go of self-protectiveness because the lamb in the midst of the throne is our shepherd. 
and our suffering is redeemed through his suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once famously wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We hear that re-echo in the book of Revelation, that the normal Christian life is a life of martyrdom, bearing witness to a crucified savior. This is what you've signed up for if you've become a follower of Jesus. But when we see the lamb in the midst of the throne, we have to say something more than that. Not just that when Christ calls someone, he bids them come and die, but when Christ calls us, he bids us come and be raised from the dead. He didn't win the keys to death in Hades just to leave us permanently in our suffering. The witness of the martyrs is a witness to his triumph. Here again, these words from Revelation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. He will guide them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the good news for those of us who trust Jesus. The lamb who is our shepherd leads us through suffering into salvation, from sacrifice to triumph, from death into life. I want to close by praying again that collect that we opened our liturgy with because these words, I think, capture the way that we're invited to respond to this hope to these great promises of scripture. Will you please pray with me? O God, whose son Jesus Christ is the good shepherd of your people, grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls us each by name and follow where he leads, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God forever and ever. Amen.